You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Morning, church. How's everybody doing? Good. Um, okay, so let's, uh, let's get right into it. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and uh, an usher will get you one, a physical one, if you want one. Not leather, though. It'll be paperback, but whatever. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. We'll start there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. And I would uh, like to remind you um, that... The topic today, we've been, we started dealing with it last week a little bit. We'll go into it more today on sexuality. Um, I've taught, we've taught, not just me, but we have taught extensively on this topic. And um, especially online, you can get a uh, series of teachings called, um, um, I think it's called Building a Sexual Ethic or something about uh, the biblical sex ethic. Part one and part two, uh, we did that last year. And there I went back into creation and how we were made as humans and our identity as an Imago Dei, as being made in the image of God, and I trace it outward. Today I'm going to specifically look at the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, so I won't get to do all that. Um, I'm hoping that you were either here through that or you got to listen to it. If you have a lot of questions after today's um, sermon, would you please go and, um, and listen to that? Also, today's teaching might be a little PG-13. I don't know. Maybe. It just depends. Um, just, just a warning if you don't watch PG-13 movies, you might want to leave now. Um, okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Um, before I read and pray, uh, whenever I've taught on sex or counseled people on sex and sexuality in San Francisco, it's been really complex to state the obvious. Where I'm from uh, and where I began doing ministry, people got married at like age 18 or something like that, like 18, between 18 and 22, and that's, that's no joke. So basically when I taught on sex, I told them what the Bible said about sex, but basically got to say, okay, just wait like three years, and you're going to be married anyways, because um, everyone gets married young. <laughs> so it was pretty simple to teach on, on sex and sexuality. You taught what the Bible said, like, don't do it, promise you won't, wait three years, and then you'll get to do uh, whatever you want to do. Um, but teaching on sex and sexuality in San Francisco is entirely different. Um, here, people don't get married till like 30-ish. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I was going to say that. Ish. Um, and some who have uh, um, long past 30 or past 30 worry if you'll ever get married. And since the historical Christian teaching on sex is in the context of marriage, there's also a fear that you'll never have sex. Well, sex in a God-honoring and self-honoring way. So there's those complexities. Then there are the complexities of same-sex attractions. If you have same-sex attractions, how do you honor God with your body when you're attracted to the same sex? In the Christian world, people with same-sex attractions are filled with all sorts of confusion, often shame and questions about how you live as a whole person sexually as you follow Jesus. I will reiterate what I said last week. Heterosexuality does not get you saved and virginity does not get you into heaven. Now, if you know that, 
How do you move forward as a follower of Jesus who has same-sex attractions? Now, I know I may have just opened up a can of worms there, but what I, what I will say, and as I drift this to the church over a series of months and weeks and years, I will say that I, I believe that in the LGBTQ community, there needs to be diversity as well. And that diversity should allow for followers of Jesus in that community who are living their lives for the glory of God. And these may be uncharted waters. For many in the LGBTQ community, there's uncharted waters for those in the Christian community. But we have to understand that what Christ calls us to do is, and when he calls us to do it, he gives us a completely new identity that we're not identified with anything anymore but Christ. There's even something where Paul says, you're not even male or female, you're in Christ. I mean, you're completely in Christ. You've lost everything in Christ. And I've seen to my own um, a lot of heartache and a lot of um, pain as I've pastored here. A lot of people divorcing spirituality to choose a sexuality. And I don't think that that divorce needs to happen or should happen. In Christ, we're made new. And though there are certain things that we will wrestle with our entire lives, we should learn and figure out how to live as a follower of Jesus. Now, let me ask if you do, if you are, if whatever, whatever, whatever thing that, you're, that, you're, uh, that you kind of, if you have same-sex attractions, let me ask you to please get in the community, in a community group especially. Whatever you're going through, you're still a part of this family, and it's Satan who tells you otherwise. Sex is, and, and so when I teach on sex and sexuality in San Francisco, it's been complicated. Nevertheless, sex is complicated. Sex is responsible for most ecstasies that occur on our planet, but it's also responsible for lots of murders and injustice and therapy and loneliness. Sex is a powerful force. It can, sex, if you think about it this way, sex can, in a matter of minutes, give the feeling the energy, the sensation, the pulse of community, friendship, family, delight, connectedness, oneness, and pure joy in, a, in an instant. And it does not matter who you're having sex with. That is the power of sex. But Christianity has been so influenced by bad teaching around sexuality, most of us are familiar with what not to do. Do not have sex until you're married. So much so that sex is seen to be carnal and too earthly to ever be spiritual. But 1 Corinthians can rescue us from such belief. Paul says that sex is intensely spiritual. Sex is connected to your body. Your body is connected to the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is one flesh with your spirit. Sex is spiritual. Sex is not just like anything else. So let me read what Paul writes to the church in Corinth about sexuality. And what you'll see here is he does a lot of back and forth. What he does, he acts like he's having a conversation with them in his writing. You might say this, well, I'll say this. Then you might say that, well, then I'll say this. And you might think that, and I say this. And you quote this, but I'll quote this back to you. He does a lot of that back and forth. In the NIV, you'll, you'll notice some quotations, and they're reflected on the screen as well. So you might be able to follow Paul's arguments. Let me read it and let me pray really fast. Verse 12, I have the right to do anything, you say. And Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. Well, I have the right to do anything, but I will be mastered by nothing, by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. 
You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh, quoting Genesis. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, and I believe its power, its authority, its, its way to, to soothe wounds and heal brokenness and be a path of holiness and righteousness and be the path of truth and light and love. And I believe in all those things and, and, and the power that your word has to do that in our lives. And that's made effective by your spirit. So Holy Spirit, I pray, God, that you would apply these words to our hearts, that those that are dead in here, that you would cause to come alive, and those who are asleep, that you would cause to wake up, and those who are ignorant, you would cause to um, know. And Lord, um, all of us together, we would come under the lordship, the beauty, and the love of Jesus Christ. Help me pastor well today, in Jesus' name, amen. Paul planted a church in Corinth, and he planted this church, and it grew, and he left. He set up elders, he set up the church, and he left. And this church had a series of problems when he left. And he wrote a letter back to this church addressing some of those issues and some of those problems. One of them was the issue of sexuality. Corinth is a very sexual place, a very sexed-up city, kind of like San Francisco, where almost anything went. There's only one thing that didn't go over real well in Corinth, which we heard this case about two weeks ago of, of incest, and that didn't really go over well in Corinth. That was a, a taboo that you didn't break. But pretty much any, a lot of other things were, were okay in, in Corinth. And so they, ha, they believe certain things about sexuality, and Paul lists them here, so I'm going to make a simple list for you. We're going to go through real quick and talk about what did Corinth believe about sex and spirituality. So the first thing they believed about sex and spirituality is they believed they, that spirituality was all about liberty. They believed as long as I'm spiritual, I have the Spirit of God in me, I can do whatever I want. That's why uh, Paul quoted them. They used to have a saying that went around that said, I have the right to do anything. I have rights. And my rights say I can do anything I want. I can be with anyone, any, anyone I, I want. I can do whatever I want. This was a slogan that was going around the church. Now, some commentators believe that this was something that Paul taught them as it pertained to food restrictions and the in-Christ paradigm theology that he preached often to them. Paul would go into a, into a place and preach Christ and says, if you're in Christ, if you're in him, it, it really doesn't um, matter how you, uh, uh, certain things you drink anymore or eat anymore or worship on certain days or not. It, in Christ, all those things are, are, are done away with. What commentators believe happened was they hijacked this to mean whatever they wanted to mean. They're like, well, Paul said, I, I, you know, I have the right to do anything in Christ. Therefore, I can sleep with whoever I want to sleep with and do whatever I want to do with my body. And Paul's like, um, that's not what I meant by that. Um, this last week, uh, pastors and I were on a, um, 
on a little uh, on a little trip on a conference, and and uh, uh, one of the, the evenings we're out on this porch in in Florida and uh, at a at a restaurant, and this um, and this homeless man walked up to us, and he just walked up and said, "Brothers, the truth will set you free," and we're like, "All right, that's awesome," <laughs> and he's like. Can I get a dollar? I'm going to buy a beer. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and we were like, I don't think that verse means what you think it means. Like, that's not what Jesus was saying there. Um, this is kind of what's happening here. Like, I, I, can, I, I have the right to do anything. Paul's like, I don't think you, that means what you think it means. You don't have the right to do anything you want to do with your bodies. That, that's not a right you have. They hijacked it. The right to do anything for them was apparently going to prostitutes and saying that, that such conduct was harmless. Now, to us, that might be a bit extreme. We're like, well, I'm not saying we're going to prostitutes. That prostitution, is, that's really, really horrible. There's no way that, that we would accept that as normal today. This might be surprising to us to think that people in the church in Corinth were actually going to prostitutes and saying that it was okay. But we must remember that the social world of, the ancient, of ancient Corinthians differed greatly from ours. Prostitution was not only legal in Corinth, it was widely accepted as social convention. You could have a prostitute and it was completely okay. Sexual latitude allowed men, by Greek public opinion, to, to be virtually unrestricted, unrestricted. Sexual relations of males with both boys and harlots were tolerated. So, this is what the church in Corinth was saying to Paul. And this writes the commentator Richard Hayes on this. He says, the Corinthian men who went to prostitutes were not asserting some new unheard of freedom. They were merely insisting on their right to continue participating in a pleasurable activity that was entirely normal within their own culture. Do you guys get that? So they weren't saying, hey, Paul, listen, we got a new thing we got going on, prostitution. It's really, really cool. We're free in Christ. We're able to do that. They weren't saying that. We weren't saying a new thing that we're able to do. They're going, our culture accepts, widely accepts this. In Christ, we're free, so we can widely accept this as well. They said that this is the way that our culture lives. Therefore, in Christ, I have the freedom to do it. There's no condemnation, right? Now, we might not view prostitution like this, but there is a cultural equivalent today. And we call it casual sex. Hooking up at a party or meeting someone in a bar or even sex in a committed relationship. Even sex in a monogamous relationship, even sex as engaged couples, even sex as boyfriend, girlfriend, or whatever. We think either way, to insist that you should not have sex until you're married seems absurd to you and to our culture. It would seem insane. It seems repressive. This is exactly how the hearers, the first listeners in Corinth, would have thought about Paul when Paul said, you can't sleep with the prostitute. They're like, are you crazy? Everyone does that. It's legal here. You're married to whomever you're married to, but, then, but that's only obligation. Then you get to have sex with whoever you want to and pay for it. And that was widely accepted, and there was people in Corinth that were doing this. And Paul said, that's not how you're to view her body or your body, or their body or your body. That is not how you're supposed to view it. Paul will argue for something deeper. The second thing they believed about sex, they believed sex was about appetite. And this is why they would have a saying, food for the stomach and stomach for food. They thought that sex was an appetite. The ancient world regular, regularly linked sexual appetite and appetite for food together. And their logic went like this. The stomach 
was the organ for nourishment, so food was there to meet that need. Food is meant for the stomach and vice versa. So also sexual activity is meant for the body, and the body is meant for sexual activity. The stomach is useless unless we eat, and the body, they thought, is useless unless we have sex. What use is a beautiful body, or any body for that matter, if you can't have sex with it? This is more or less what they learned, what they thought about sex, and this today is more or less what we learned in school and what our culture still believes about sex. Sex is just one of the very, very important human appetites that needs fulfilling. I think we understand sex as appetite. Most of our culture, I'd say a lot of our city thinks this way, but here's why, but you might think, okay, why in the world were they allowed to think that? Why did they think that as Christians? Why do they think sex was an appetite as a Christian? And here's why. Here's the third thing they believed about sex. They believed the body didn't really matter. And this is why they would say, God will destroy them both. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food, and God's going to destroy them both. This is what they believed. They believed that, that our bodies were husks that we will one day shed when we get into heaven. These are just a shell. Who I really am is my spirit. I'm not my body, I'm my spirit. And one day I'm gonna shed this body and be one with God in heaven forever. This, the spirit counts for everything. The body counts for nothing. Our bodies don't matter. That means we can eat whatever we want. We can drink whatever we want. We can smoke whatever we want. We can have sex with whoever we wanna have sex with. Our bodies are just shells that we shed. It does not matter what we do to our bodies. Now lying behind this form of spirituality is a Greek view of the world that says the spirit is somehow immortal, but the body, along with the rest of the material order, is destined for destruction. Our bodies are just going to be destroyed anyways. This is why they say God will destroy them both. God will destroy food and the stomach. God will destroy everything. Our bodies don't matter. And thus, according to Corinthian culture, it does not matter what we do with our bodies. Our bodies are transient. Our bodies are trivial. Now, few of us are inclined to believe this view, but we are actually quite opposite. We idolize the body and suppose that the only present world, this physical world, is the only world that really matters. See, the Corinthian view is the body counts for nothing, therefore you can do with it whatever you want. Our cultural view is the body counts for everything, therefore God can't really be trusted with it. Their view is, you know what, the body doesn't matter, I can do whatever I want with it. Our view is this, the body is everything. And because my body is everything, I can't trust God with my body. I can't trust God with what I eat. I can't trust God with what I wear. I can't trust God with who I have sex with. My body is way too important. This flesh is so important to me, it's the last thing I surrender. I will give my heart to Jesus. I will not give Jesus my body. I will not give Jesus my sexual organs. I will not give Jesus my eyes. I will not give Jesus my hands. Those are mine. But Jesus can have my heart. We care about the physical body so much that we don't, that's the last thing to surrender to God. Surrendering our our sexuality to Jesus is so foreign to us. It's so difficult to us because we care so much about the body. The Greeks didn't care about the body. The Greeks said, who cares about the body? Have, do whatever you want with the body. We care a lot. But we also know, we also, I think we're getting, um, especially in San Francisco, we, we also believe that we're more than just our bodies, so we're sexual, we're, we're spiritual people too. And this is why people practice yoga. 
This is why we like to go things, to things that are transcendent. That's why we go to certain concerts that pull us into something else. We, we, we feel like we want to, that's why people take chemicals and use drugs. We feel like our bodies are like cages and we want to break out of them to the transcendent. And so we know that our bodies aren't just it, but we don't know how to connect our spirit and our bodies together. Christianity as a faith does this. Christianity says your bodies matter and your spirit matters and it marries them. Now, this is what Corinth believed about sex and spirituality. And this is what frames the whole section. We'll get back to this in a second. But according to Dale Keene, the author of Sex in the Eye World, World, a book I've recommended to you several times, he is also the professor of politics at St. Anselm College in New Hampshire, He says that we have our own cultural beliefs about sex. And he says we don't follow the Ten Commandments anymore. We don't follow any rules anymore. The sex conversation, the sexual conversation in our culture today is viewed under three taboos. He says we live under these three taboos when it comes to sexuality. Taboo number one, don't harm anyone. You can do whatever you want sexually, just don't harm anyone. Taboo number two, there must be consent. If there is harm, make sure the other person is consensual in that harm. So you can do, just don't harm anyone, but if you're going to harm someone, make sure it's consensual. Okay? So consent is everything. And then the third one is don't judge the morality of others. If you don't break any of these three things, you can do anything you want. Did you harm anyone? No. Well, yeah, what they, they said I could. Okay? And d- don't judge what I do. And I'm not going to judge you, and you don't judge me. These are the three taboos all sexual practice in our culture is lived under. Making indiv- and what this does is it makes individual choice the priority of all our sexual ideology. It's all about individual choice. And we live in a, a culture, a time, that has moved away from any real moral foundation for our lives and have more or less transitioned into an age in which individual preference and choice trump everything. And so Dale Keene writes in his book, he says, the core commitments of our society are first to provide space for the maximum legal amount of individual freedom through the expansion of individual rights, and second, to make sure that such an expansion does not violate the rights of others. So our whole commitment as a society, are to provide space for maximum legal amount of individual freedom as long as that expansion does not violate the rights of others. And this is how we view sexuality. If you're a Christian or not, this is a culture, this is a cultural thing, and a culture has a way of shaping the way that we see the world. We believe that the expansion of individual, individual rights will lead to an increased happiness and fulfillment. And the only boundaries an individual will face in their quest for individual rights will be what he or she is able to imagine and desire. And this is proving true all over the world, especially pushing the bounds of sexuality. If this is the flavor of our culture, look at what it does to our faith. What it does to us, and the way that I would say that the way that, that, that you and I start to think, if you just pause for a minute and go, okay, how has this sort of worldview shaped my worldview? Probably the same way it shaped Corinth's. When I start to, when the church, pastors, the Bible, God, whatever you want to say, starts putting restrictions on your sex life, you start to push back by saying, I have the right to do anything. 
I have the right to do, and you start to sound exactly like Corinth, and the book is like 2,000 years old. You're saying the same thing. Like, I have the right to do that. No, in, the expansion of individual freedom is what, what, is what happiness is all about, and you, see, you keep pushing, pushing, pushing. Look at that Dale King quote again. Put that quote up for a second. What Paul argues about sexuality in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, this is profound, is that if everyone claims unqualified autonomy, meaning I can do whatever I want with whomever I want, as long as I don't violate those three taboos, if, anyone, if everyone claims unqualified autonomy, no one can be truly free, for everyone is threatened by the freedoms of the other. And this is what Paul says. And not just that, Paul argues that not only will you violate the rights of other members of the Christian community, if you have a view of sexuality that's completely individualistic, what Paul says is that you violate the rights of Christ. Because Christ owns your body. You don't have the rights that you think you have. I have the right to do anything. And Paul would say, actually, you surrendered those rights when Christ purchased you with his precious blood. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Now, let's look at how Paul does this. Paul does it like this. Now, recall these, th- these three things, and I want to go through them as we try to land this plane. Um, they believed, okay, these, these three things, they believed uh, spirituality was about liberty, they believed sex was about appetite, they believed the body didn't really matter. How does Paul answer these things and by doing so teach the spirituality of sexuality? First, Paul says this, sex is spiritual. Sex is spiritual. Now, I love the way Paul says sex is spiritual because it's genius. He says it like this. He says, sex is first physical and your physicality is spiritual Therefore, sex is spiritual. That's what Paul says. You're you're physical. Sex is physical. Your physicality is linked to your spirituality. Therefore, sex is spiritual. Look at what he says in verse 14 and 15 and 19. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. That's resurrection speak. Okay, that's resurrection talk. Hang on. You'll understand why he uses it in a second. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I love what Paul does here. Paul is taking over their own theological starting point. They say that they are spiritual. That's how the whole book of 1 Corinthians opens up. We are spiritual because we have the Spirit of God. And because we have the Spirit of God, which because we have the Spirit of God, it means our bodies don't matter. We have the right to do anything we want. We have the Spirit of God and our bodies count for nothing. The body doesn't matter. But Paul argues the exact opposite. He says this. The presence of the Spirit of God in your body means that God affirms your body. Because God has taken up residence in your body, the very fact that God has moved into your body, taken up residence in it means that God affirms your body. Further proof of this is that God will resurrect your body. He will raise it up. He has the power. The the Lord raised him up and he's going to raise you up. Your body are not husks that you will shed. The body is something that God is going to resurrect in the new heavens and the new earth. When you and I get to heaven, heaven is going to be profoundly physical. You will have a physical body and it will be this body resurrected. 
and we will live on earth, but it'll be a new heavens and a new earth. Heaven is going to be entirely physical. Your body matters. It matters to God. That's why Jesus gave his body for your body. That's why Jesus takes up residence in your body. Your body and what you do with your body matters. Your body is a temple. And this is what Paul argues. And then Paul says, Do you not know that the presence of God's Spirit in you means that you are not your own? That is, that your bodies are not your own to do with your bodies as you wish. See, for the Christian, sex is something sacred. Sex is spiritual. Sex is never a casual thing. If we respect the proper nature of sex, it builds the soul as a sacrament. Conversely, if the nature is not respected, if the nature of sex is not respected, it becomes a perverse thing that works at decaying the soul. Sex will either work towards you, something giving you life, or it will be something that rips away at your soul. Sex is not just something like anything else. Ronald Rollheiser says in his book, The Holy Longing, he says, sex is a fire so powerful, so precious, so close to the heart and the soul of a person, and so godly that it either gives life or it takes it away. It can never be casual. It is either a sacrament or a destructive act. And this is why Paul pushes everything back to, don't you know it was said, when he pulls it back to, the two will become, for it is said, the two will become one flesh. The power of sex to be, take two lives and make them one flesh happens irregardless if there's a covenant of marriage or not. It happens. The way that God created the universe, it happens. And this is why sex will either strengthen that bond or destroy your soul. This is the power of sex. The second thing that Paul says is that sex is permanent. Something permanent happens in sex. That's why it's not casual. That's why you can't just hook up with a prostitute or someone else. I've used this quote, but I use it again because it's genius. C.S. Lewis, obviously. (laughs) The Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism. The male and the female were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on a sexual level, but totally combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the kinds of union which are intended to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude does not mean that there's anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than about the pleasure of eating. It means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. What we have done is we've separated sex from its holistic purpose that it, w- that it was created for by God. It is the glue. Sex is the cement, the graphic and most pleasurable reality of the union of marriage, and you can't just isolate that. C.S. Lewis says that it's like isolating the pleasure of eating. It's like the joy of food is part of a greater reality of nourishment and energy and digestion. You can't just remove the process and just take the pleasure of eating. We try to do that, and it's called an eating disorder. And what C.S. Lewis says is that we have a sexual disorder. Our culture has a sexual disorder. 
we are isolating sex from its holistic reality. And this is exactly what Paul says. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality. It's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The Lord gave his body for our body. That's why the Lord is for our body. He gave his life for our life. But then our lives are to be for him. Sex is not just an appetite. Sex, when it's taken from its holistic reality, is very destructive. And Paul is saying here that we are a people who are intensely spiritual and physical at the same time. And what Paul does is uses prostitutes as a case study. He says, you can't have sex with the prostitute. Why? Because you're not in love with him or her? No, he doesn't say that. He's not arguing that prostitution is bad because you don't love them. Paul is saying that when you have sex with someone, you are joining your body and your soul with that person. You are becoming one flesh with them. Sex, by its very nature, speaks of total giving, total trust, and total commitment. If real trust, commitment, permanency, and unconditionality, which are the vows of marriage, are not present in the wider relationship, sex is a lie. It pretends to give a gift that it does not really give and it asks for a gift that it cannot respectively reciprocate. And lastly, there's no slide for this, but I'll say sex is communal. This is the last point that Paul makes. He says, shall I take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Now, why would he say, shall I take the members of Christ? That's pretty graphic. I mean, if I was to be real graphic, he's saying, shall I take Christ and have, make Christ have sex with a prostitute. It's, some, it's, some like, it's like that sort of language that he's using there. He's saying in the reality, we've, we've, we've been married to Jesus Christ, and should I take that marriage and, be, and bring another lover into that marriage? When you are in Christ, your body is no longer your own. It belongs to Christ. And what Paul will argue in the very next chapter is when you're married, your body does not belong to you. It belongs to your spouse. Your body is not your own. If you're single in here, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Jesus. If you're married in here, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Jesus and your spouse. Honor God with your body. Our bodies matter. And it's communal in the sense that we are members of Christ, and, and sex creates a reality. Sex creates a new reality. The, you're no longer two but one. That's like one new reality that sex creates. Think about that. That's, that's the power of sex, of biblical sex, of what the Bible says about sex. The power of it is that there's two people. They have sexual intercourse. They're no longer two people. That's not just speaking of marriage. That's speaking of sex. They're no longer two people, they're one person. They're a new reality. They're a new community. That's why sex is so powerful. Now finally, let me close with implications. What are we to do with this? Look at verse 18 with me. Here are the implications. Flee sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, the word there is porneia. The definition of porneia in Scripture is anything outside of Genesis 2, 24, and 25. Anything outside of a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. 
That's what we're talking about and what Jesus quoted when he taught on marriage. Flee. Now, let me just say this. I'm just going to be completely honest with you. This is the, probably the, the hard part to hear right now. It doesn't matter if you're married or single. This is for everyone. You will, as a follower of Jesus, you will have to do a lot of fleeing. A lot. Probably for the rest of your lives. Flee sexual morality. Flee pornea. You will have to do a lot of fleeing. With the culture we live in, with pornography, with casual sex, with everything but sexual intercourse, but we think it's okay still, with all of those things that is just everywhere, with the social, the social sort of norms that surround sex and sexuality, you're going to have to do a lot of fleeing. And I don't care who you're attracted to, you're going to have to do a lot of fleeing. But here's the good news. You don't flee so that God approves of you. You do not flee to be accepted by God. You flee because you are. That's the biggest point. Paul says, flee sexual immorality. And the reason is, is because Christ is in you. He does not say, hey, flee sexual immorality, so if you flee enough, then God gets to enter your body. And he says, okay, this is acceptable for me. I like how how you've been fleeing for a while. I guess I'll enter in now. Paul says flee because he has entered in. Flee because Christ has purified you. Flee because Christ has made his residence in your heart. Flee because you have the spirit of the living God inside of you. Flee because you are in Christ. Flee because that's who you are. Don't flee to be somebody. Flee because you are somebody. You're a follower of Jesus. You're a new creation. Flee because of that. And so if you thought somehow that church and Christianity was all about you cleaning your life up and your sexual life up so that one day you can be made whole or you could be made Christian or you could be made right, that's a lie. Or if somehow in this audience there are people in here who have fleed their whole life and you think because you fled your whole life from sexual immorality, God owes you something, that's a lie. We can't use as a, if we flee sexual morality for a long time, we can't use it as a bargaining chip to God and go, God, look at I flee sexual morality and you owe me this. It's by grace that Christ enters in. And so Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Do not know that your bodies are temples of this Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Your bodies, your physical bodies are precious to God. Are precious. No matter what you've done with your physical body, if you've done the most horrific things, or maybe you haven't done them, but they were done to you, your body is precious to Jesus. So much so that he took on, his, took on flesh and gave his physical body for you to buy your body to make it his. To take it and to go, I've given my life so that I can redeem your life. And purify you completely. Purify you from your past. Purify you from your present situation. Completely, completely become Christ's. And it's because of that that we move forward now and glorify God with our bodies. Church. 
this verse came to me this morning as we were praying before service. Jesus said, this is eternal life, to know God and to know whom you sent, Jesus Christ. This eternal life is true spirituality. To be truly spiritual is to know God and to know Jesus. And through that process of knowing God and knowing Jesus, we, get to, we, we enter into a process of knowing ourselves. That is true spirituality. Spirituality is not some form of meditation. It's not as complex as we make it. Spirituality is simply knowing God. I'm going to invite you this morning, if you don't know God, if you've been plagued with impurity, plagued with worthlessness, or trying to find something that sex gives us in an instant, but it doesn't satisfy, for the satisfaction is never as much as the desire, and never satisfies, let me ask you to come to Jesus invite you to come to Christ. Christ said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. That when we turn to him, there's something of a weight that's lifted off of us. That cosmic restlessness is gone. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and the power of it. As we move to a time of responding to you, God, I pray that I pray that you would redeem our sexuality, that you would redeem. I pray that you would redeem our loneliness right now. I know that when we, when we whenever we talk about sex, the people who are having sex feel guilty, the people who are not feel lonely, the people who are married, sometimes they feel like their sex life does not measure up. We're all completely broken, God. Especially when it comes to this issue of sexuality. I mean, there's something so powerful about it. And so, God, I ask that you would redeem us. Redemption is only found in you, Jesus. That's it. So I pray that we turn to you and live. Pray against any thoughts now that of, of self-righteousness, that I'm good because I don't have sex, or those who just despair, who say, there's no way I can go to Jesus. He doesn't want this. I pray that righteous, self-righteous or completely defiled, we would come to you, Jesus, now. And as we do, we'd find life and healing and hope and restoration. In Jesus' name, amen.